You're listening to Temporary Circumstances, and I'm your host, Alina Sowers, a licensed professional counselor in Ohio. And I'm your co-host, Cora Mayfield, also a licensed professional counselor in the state of Ohio. In this podcast, we're going to share some ideas and things that we've learned that aren't too often talked about in mental health, including some taboo topics, if you will, like death and grief, trauma and PTSD, addictions, and others. We will cover some of the worst things imaginable that happen to people around us every single day and how we can help them get through those difficult times. The opinions on this show are ours only and do not reflect any agency that we work for. Hey everyone, so today we're going to talk about mental health and law, and we have a guest with us today, uh, Kevin Jackson. He's a behavioral specialist. So I'm, I hope that today's episode is going to be unique and just a little bit of background on us. So I myself, I have a master's in forensic psychology, and then Mr. Kevin, he's worked for the police. And Cora previously worked for the 911 emergency services. So I'm hoping that this is going to be an interesting episode for you guys and that we can bring some unique perspectives in as we talk about this topic. So Kevin, do you want to talk a little bit about the program that you work for? Sure. I'm a former police officer, actually retired after 15 years. And uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed was working with uh, youth. So now I'm a behavioral specialist at a, uh, a mental health agency here in Columbus. And uh, we work primarily with juveniles and juveniles that are at risk, at risk because of their behavior. They're brought to our facility after being arrested for minor crimes. And we offer them mental health services instead of incarceration. We work directly with the courts. So everything we do is, is legal as far as them um, being in the court system, but they, we try to keep them away from being incarcerated and also keep them away from um, reoffending because that's our biggest, our biggest goal is to keep them out of the system as a juvenile so they won't uh, end up a, a statistic when they get to be an adult because we know that is something that, uh, that incarceration starts when they're young and uh, it can continue on without some kind of intervention. So that's what I do. I've been doing that for five years now, almost six years. Thank you, Kevin. So we wanted to take this opportunity to speak a little bit about some of the things that are going on in the world today. Um, this recording isn't going to come out right away. However, what we're living through today is the protests over the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And these protests are going on across the world, across the country, in many different cities, involving hundreds of thousands of people. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the mental health aspect of what's happening right now. So I, I guess what I can speak to is what I've observed. Um, being probably the oldest one here, uh, I can remember a lot of different instances where what sparked this, this movement has been going on for, for quite some time. I think the difference that I see now the way that I interpret it is different, obviously, because I have a little bit more uh, knowledge about mental health and, and what it looks like. But I think this is, is tapped into a, uh, a, a almost a global understanding of what's going on, or even just people looking into a world that was considered invisible. I mean, with, with social media and, and um, 
the way that this is being documented is uh, is directly impacting the way that people react to this. Uh, it's like saying, I mean, we saw a murder on TV, and that's that's not out of Hollywood. This is this is new, and how people are reacting to that. This is something that we have to look at because it's real. It's not something that is is made up. So as a as a mental health professional, I'm looking at something that we haven't seen before. This thing has been going on far more than um, I thought would actually last. I mean, there's a reaction, then we go back to normal. There is a reaction, we go back to normal. Now, I don't think we're going back. It's going to be a new normal. And I think the mental health community needs to look at it, educate, educate themselves to be able to help those who are stunned. And some people may even have reactions that they didn't know that they even had. And so we, we have to, because we don't know how this is going to turn out. We really don't. I, I know that we, we, we've seen the reaction to the event itself, but it's going to be months, if not a year or so, that the resolution to this particular incident is going to be over. And once that, that verdict is, is read, we have to be ready to, to be able to respond to either way it goes. This is not a done deal. So I'm, I'm looking at this as a learning, something that we're learning, but we're learning on the, we're learning on the edge right now. We're reacting uh, to something that is just unique, unprecedented, really, um, especially with the young people and, and the, the content of why uh, people are angry. It's not new, but there needs to be an approach. We can't sweep this under the rug anymore. So I'm, I'm hopefully we're learning to be able to, uh, to address this as it comes and what's, what's in the future. As we discuss some of these um, like justice systems and we discuss the role of mental health, law enforcement and justice systems in general, in the lens of what's going on with us today, um, one of the things I wanted to think about is the idea of bias and how people approach other people with these biases that they may not be aware of. Um, and this is especially important in this moment about how the police approach people and how the justice system is approaching people who are different than themselves. Um, and I wanted to speak from my experience a little bit in working with a police department in a large city um, that there's a program called CIT or critical incident training um, that really makes the police reflect on their own bias, on their own bias towards mental health, on their bias towards race and the role of race in mental health um, and really has them changing their approach and the changing the way they think about policing. Um, I know in the police department I worked with that, that there was a big push for this and that it had been welcomed with open arms with the mental health community. Um, Kevin, I know that you've had some experience with working with CIT officers and working in, in that area. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I have 
I've been through that type of training before, years ago. I was able to see firsthand the resistance and the acceptance of, of that kind of thinking. It takes a long time to try to change the way a person thinks, if at all possible. I think CIT is a good start. I think it's a good program. It's absolutely needed and timely. But I think that if the police department really wants to bring this home to where their, their, their abilities to address mental health, CIT needs to be a part of their entrance exam. And uh, I, I, we're not there yet, but I think that when you start recruiting based on uh, one's ability to react in contrary to your own biases, that's when you'll see you really change in, in, uh, in how you police, especially particular a, 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 a culture that you're not familiar with, uh, whatever, whatever that culture would be. Uh, right now we're talking about people of color, but it could be uh, poverty uh, and how to address that. Poverty could bring some type of uh, mental illness there, trauma, especially with children. But I think when you start recruiting and, and you start putting that aspect in there that you're going to have to drop your biases at the door. And when you start doing that, when you start weeding these ones out, then I think your, your department will show tremendous change in how they deal with all cultures, uh, just not African-American. Because we, in Columbus, we're, we have a lot of different cultures here. Even African-American culture is different when you look at color, because we have a big Somalian culture here. Uh, a lot of uh, African countries are, are looking at Columbus and Ohio itself as a, as a haven for refugees. So we, we need to come um, willing to accept all cultures. And that would, that would help a lot. Uh, I think that, that could be a good start with, with uh, uh, talking about how we need to change. But first, we need to realize that we do need to change. One of the things that you were talking about earlier when we were discussing how we're going to go about this episode is the idea of the, the way that bias might play out in interacting with somebody who has pre-existing mental health conditions and is also a person of color. Um, and the way that some of the behaviors that we see from people who have a mental health issue who, that is triggered at that moment, when the police in, approach someone like that, recognizing the difference between mental health and um, anger, disrespect, and potentially violence. Um, I, I think that there's a lot to be said about seeing, looking through the mental health lens first. The, the, the anxiety-driven uh, response to being pulled over. I was a police officer for 15 years. I've been pulled over and I have a, uh, an anxiety uh, for that. So uh, I kind of know like how somebody would feel, even though I know my law, my, my constitutional rights and things like that, I know I'm safe, but still that, that, um, that anxiety, automatic anxiety is there. Being young and just not knowing how to deal with those, uh, those feelings and uh, you deal it with in the wrong way, then you have an officer who doesn't understand that and he responds to your response. 
And that's when we, that's where the breakdown. This person is yelling, but is he, is he threat? Uh, or is he just loud? Or, uh, or is it just, why are you pulling me over? Uh, when I, I myself think that I haven't done anything wrong. So there's going to be a, you're, you're just messing with me kind of response. If a police officer responds to just those things, then um, it's going to be not a, it's not going to be a very good interaction. I think when you have a, a training about that, I think sometimes with that de-escalation training and the CIT training to understand what, what trauma-induced um, reactions are going to be, I think you're, you're, the way that you're, you're going to interact with that person is going to be much more positive. Uh, what we're seeing now is we're seeing officers bringing their own biases and then looking for those things that come out of that, out of that stop or that, that interaction. You're looking for things to legitimize the way you feel about a particular person based on race or, or color or, or socioeconomic uh, uh, status. I mean, you pull over a nice car, you're expecting, you know, a nice person behind there. That's a bias. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But there are some people who do think that. And if, you, if you're always looking at a way to legitimize the way you feel about a person, you're going to find it. And once you do, that's what you react to. And, and I think that's where we're missing the ability to talk. I see a little bit of it now with, with protesters and how the police officers are joining in some with some of the protesters. Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings. And so just being able to see and stop and pause and, and look at not the reaction, but the reason for the reaction makes a better interaction. So as we start to talk more about the justice system itself um, and less about the initial interaction with the police officer, I want to talk a little bit about sentencing bias. So what we're talking about today is going to be about mental health and the differences between can mental health assistance help with reoffending instead of punishment in prison. And there are a lot of mental health programs available for people, especially people with minor offenses or nonviolent offenses, including the one that you work for yourself. And mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the idea that if somebody has mental health issues, is there a bias there whether they are seen as a person with mental health versus seen as a person who's a criminal um, and the populations that are getting mental health assistance versus prison? But also, it still goes under understanding who you're dealing with. If, if, if someone's having a mental health breakdown, it could look like something that you expected. Oh yeah, I expected this person to be loud. I, because of my uh, interactions with a particular group of people and I don't understand the culture, then I'm expecting this person to be loud. That person may be having a breakdown and you're not looking at it that way. You're looking at it as disrespect or whatever. They end up going into the system and, and never even being identified as having a mental health issue. Uh, they go into the system and they continue with that. There's biases on the inside of there as well. You know, how, do you, how are you supposed to act when you come in? And if you're not, if you're not conforming to that, then 
you know, you're being disrespectful. Uh, we have, for instance, we have people who have claustrophobia. Put them in a cell, and you're going to get a certainly different reaction to somebody who who's not. So, if we don't start to recognize uh, those those things in in um, in people that are incarcerated or people who end up in the system, then the, the numbers of mental health individuals being in there's not going anywhere. I mean, I would be the first one to tell you that I'm pretty sure that I've I've dealt with mental health uh, suspects wrong after being able to uh, be on this end of it. And I can go back and look and say, well, you know, that maybe that was something that that person was dealing with. But once they're inside the system, it's in, unless they embrace the same thing that's on the outside as, as far as us trying to recognize the, the, uh, the reason why somebody would commit a crime, then it's not going to change. Uh, so we're, we're trying to change people's minds throughout the whole system because it is a system. Right. So I know, Alina, that you have some statistics about prison systems versus mental health that you wanted to share. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I've heard several times throughout, you know, my education and my career is that our prisons are the biggest mental health hospitals that we have around. Um, so we do know that the mentally ill do have higher recidivism rates as a result of that. Um, so there was an article published in, in 2020 in the Journal of, the, of Psychiatry and the Law, um, and they talked about the fact that inmates with substance use disorders reoffend at a higher rate than other inmates. They also found that inmates who had both mental illness and substance use disorders reoffended at an even higher rate. And then looking into individuals who perhaps have even more serious mental illnesses, um, things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, those persons tended to have even higher recidivism rates than those with other psychiatric disorders. So unfortunately, we do know that it's, it's not the best place to be as somebody who struggles with mental illness. Um, it's not the best place to be in prison. Evidence does show, looking at the same study, that with treatment, there is a reduction in those reoffending rates. And that's routine outpatient treatment. Even treatment that includes medication reduces the likelihood of someone being arrested again after they've been released. So there was a state survey done by the Treatment Advocacy Center from 2017 that looked at individuals with serious mental illness who had committed crimes, and then they also looked at community treatment as well. And I do want to mention here that these individuals who have serious mental illness and commit major crimes, they only make up about 2% of all individuals with serious mental illness. So this does not, this is not the case for most individuals who struggle with mental illness, only about 2%. Um, but I did want to share that those reoffending rates that this survey had looked at, they found that in the US, compared to other countries, um, our reoffending rates were higher. They did also look at psychotic disorders, and they found that the rate of reoffending 
for those was twice as high in the US compared to some of the other countries. What I really want to point out though is that evidence-based programs do exist for individuals with serious mental illness and they do reduce reoffending rates. Um, so for those individuals with serious mental illness who committed major crimes and have completed some kind of treatment, um, this particular survey by the Treatment Advocacy Center found that it reduced rates from 40 to 60% down to 10% or less. So that's quite a significant decrease that we see there. Kevin, you had a thought about statistics and just pointing out the fact that perhaps these statistics are even higher. You know, so what I named just now is that 40 to 60% of individuals with mental illness reoffend. We're not, obviously, we can't be sure that that is 100% accurate. So um, can you share a little bit on what your thoughts were on that? I mean, yeah, because if this is if this a, a deep underlying mental illness, not something that is just you can recognize right off, getting into why they're, why they're doing the things they're doing, then they get, they get skipped, they get lost, and they're just, they're just labeled as a repeat offender, mm -hmm. uh, and that's what they want to do. One of the things that I think that we have to, as not only just mental health, but police officers and just the general public, is we got to stop thinking that people are just bad. And if the, and then those people, they get lost. And there may be something that's just causing them to do these things, and they're not getting, they're not getting uh, treated. So they may go in and out of the system, and it's just, it, the people are just looking at it, it is what it is. I mean, it's, it's just going to be that way. And sometimes it is, but a lot of time we need to start looking into the background. It, it, it amazes me sometimes when I see courtroom um, excuses for some of um, some of the offenders. But then when they when they want people to understand why they did something, they go into their background. And we talk about childhood trauma, and and how is this and how that is true. But at this point, they're criminals. So that's just that's just their story, but we're going to move forward uh, to sentencing them and and uh, just let them go their way. So I think a lot of a lot of times we miss we miss the diagnosis. Sometimes it could just be because of the heinous of the crime. We're not, I mean, we're not looking into it because we don't want to. You know, we want to think that this person was under control and did what they did, and now we're we're going to punish them for it. I was thinking a little bit as you were talking about the stigma of mental health um, and what that might do to somebody's beliefs about themselves. And as you were talking and you're saying we're missing these people, the idea that somebody might not want to share that about themselves to people who have been aggressive and aggravating and not supportive of them on through this whole process. Then, then we go ahead and miss that. So if there's no one advocating for folks with mental health in these moments, they may intentionally hide that bit. Um, and then the last thing you said about we don't want to see it, we just want to see it as bad people, made me think of how scary it is, how mental health is scary, and how 
people, the idea that you can't trust your own brain in certain moments. And if we call this mental health instead of criminal, then it could possibly be any, in, in any moment, you don't know. Um, and that's a scary thought. So instead of having that scary thought and the bigger dialogue that goes with that, let's just slap a criminal layer, label on them and put them in jail. Right. Uh, we see a lot of that with our, with our young people. Uh, that stigma goes probably much more because they're trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to get out their identity of who they are. Some of them would much rather think, have you think they're a bad person than to go in and really get into why I'm making these types of decisions. We have a lot of who don't want to divulge because it hurts. And, and for, for our agency, it's tough to get uh, uh, these young people involved in mental health services. We even refrain from even saying mental health. You know, we, we just say it's help. You know, um, I mentioned something to a person one time and I said it was a counselor. And I'm like, oh, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that it was a counselor. And he was like, oh, nope, you already said it. So he shut down. He's like, I don't need counseling. So, so sometimes we can rephrase it, uh, especially with kids, because they would much rather you think of them as bad than quote unquote crazy. Because nobody wants to be that. And like you said, that stigma, that's, that's a huge hurdle. Even when we're trying to help people stay away from the system that is not good for them. Yeah, absolutely. Mr. Kevin had a lot of experience and information to share with us on this topic. We ended up discussing it for a lot longer than we expected. If you'd enjoyed this episode, please keep an eye out for part two of Mental Health in the Justice System coming soon. Thanks for listening to Temporary Circumstances. Leave us a review wherever you found us and comment on anything you want to hear more about or have questions on.